Axis Mundi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. Our show is hosted in partnership with the CAP Center, UCSB. And I'm back behind the mic with a, with an amazing interview talking about something that I know uh, a lot of you are interested in, um, a lot of you hear about, some of you have some experience uh, with, and that is traditional Catholicism. Some of you uh, Twitter folks might see the, the words or the phrase trad Catholics. Uh, and so... We're going to talk about that. We're going to do that with two folks who are just really uh, kind of the perfect people to do that with. And that is Ashley McKinless, who is executive director at America Mag and the co-host of Jesuitical, along with uh, Zach Davis, who is associate editor and senior director of digital at America Mag and uh, the, the other host of Jesuitical. So to uh, Zach and Ashley, just first, let me say thanks for coming on. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, really excited to get into this. I, um, as you know, am uh, doing this podcast from a car. So everybody <laughs> listening, um, just so you know, this is, we're doing this on the fly today because of childcare shuffling and mother-in-laws visiting and people working <laughs> from home and all that stuff. So uh, it's a very glamorous life uh, that we have at Straight White American Jesus. And this is just one more iteration. Happy to be right, part let's of talk your about uh, glamorous life, Brad. No, <laughs> truly. No, I'm sorry to bring you, <laughs> I'm sorry to bring you down to my level. I feel like you're just like, oh my God. What kind of, what have I gotten myself Not into? At this all. Man? Not uh, at all. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, let's just talk about this. Very like, you know, basic things for y'all, things that are, are very kind of um, uh, taken for granted. But if you can help us just to get going, what's a working definition of trad Catholicism, traditional Catholicism? You know, what are we talking about here? Um, you know, Zach, I'm wondering, do you want to jump in on this and just sort of help us have like a very simple idea of what this is as we talk today. Sure. As usual, I'll start and then leave it to Ashley to correct anything <laughs> that I've either left out or stated <laughs> stated incorrectly. Uh, so I'll start with saying Catholics, uh, generally, it's not super helpful to like make these distinctions in general. Um, we really, especially here in America, we try to shy away from talking about Catholics as like liberal or conservative or traditional or progressive and these types of things. That said, um, Tradcaths, and a lot of people identify as tradcaths. I'll say it's someone who may do a series of these things, right? So they might attend a traditional Latin mass, right? So this is a form of our liturgy, our mass, our worship service that um, existed um, before the Second Vatican Council. So that's that's a major thing that took place in the Catholic Church in, in the 1960s. So church was in Latin, now it's in the vernacular. So it's in English in the United States, um, English and Spanish in all kinds of languages. Um, 
they might attend the old form of the mass. They might hearken back to a time when uh, Catholicism had a bit more either political power. So this could go even further back to, you know, Middle Ages, medieval times. They might, you know, pine for that sort of relationships. And they feel like now they've lost some of that here in the in the U.S. and in Western Europe and around the world. Um, but in in general, it's it's sort of a difficult thing to describe, I think. They're not really a monolith, but it is like sort of this amalgamation. And so that's also distinct, I would say, from how traditional Catholics exist online, right? So these are the people that you might encounter who have like night Twitter avatars in Latin anonymous names that are kind of, they might be set of a cantist, which is you think that Pope Francis is not a valid pope and there haven't been, been any valid popes since... Vatican II. So there is like a pretty wide range, um, both in real life and online. I don't know. Ashley, do you think I got that mostly correct? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think if people are familiar with Pope Francis, the current pope, uh, some people might see traditionalists as maybe in more opposition or tension with the current pope, with his emphasis on on mercy, uh, inclusiveness, and might pine for a time when we had someone like Pope Benedict, who had more of a focus on, you know, policing doctrinal boundaries, making sure we had the correct beliefs. We weren't we weren't changing the fundamental tenets of the faith. Um, so so a greater emphasis on on that clarity, I think. And then there's just like the cultural matters of you probably smoke a pipe, you probably drink <laughs> Chesterton in your spare but, time. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the Twitter Twitter thing because I I. Do do think that's kind of at least among online online people the image they have is is the crusader anonymous crusader on twitter but i don't think that's representative as of traditional catholics uh, as a group in the united states you know 20 percent of americans are on twitter i'd be surprised if <laughs> there are a higher percentage of traditional catholics on twitter so uh, that's a small group and so you know who's a more traditional catholic like the mother who goes to a normal parish but uses natural family planning and has a large family or this guy on twitter who's fighting over the latin mass yeah yeah totally understand the um the difficulties with that with that moniker traditional catholicism and why you know y'all would shy away from that at the magazine and in other places and so totally understand that i i do want to zero in on vatican ii just for a second so i will say that i think some folks listening will uh, have a kind of fuzzy understanding of what that is. Others are Catholic, ex-Catholic, et cetera, and they will have a, a more nuanced view. But it, could you just help us? You know, Vatican II takes place in the mid-1960s. It's, a, it's just a, a massive uh, event in the life of the Catholic Church. What does that change uh, on the ground? You know, we can talk about all the doctrinal and all of the ecclesiastical and all the theological aspects of Vatican II, but... I guess for me, if if I'm a, as you mentioned there, Ashley, like that person, that that mother who goes to her local parish, what did Vatican II change on the ground for somebody in Columbus, Ohio, or <laughs> in San Antonio, Texas? Yeah. So, so the major thing is what uh, Zach mentioned, which is before uh, the 1960s, they would go to they would go to mass, and it would be in Latin. The priest would be facing away from the congregation. Um, you would go up to when you've received communion, you would kneel at an altar rail and receive it in the mouth in the mouth instead of on your hands. And so it's it was a, a liturgy that traditional Catholics uh, would say is much more reverent uh, and focused on the sacrifice of the mass after Vatican II. Uh, 
which took place from 1962 to 1965, um, there was a pretty major revolution in in the liturgy. So putting it into the vernacular and encouraging the active participation of lay Catholics in the mass. So, you know, hearing the readings, singing songs in their own language uh, that, you know, sounded closer to what they might hear in the like wider popular culture. So, you know, you start getting guitars at mass and drums. Um, uh, many of the churches that were built uh, in the 70s and 80s um, also reflected the, at least in the United States, the American aesthetics of that time. So carpets, <laughs> felt banners, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, less less of the what we call the smells and bells, the, the bells and the incense uh, that come with uh some forms of the mass. So yeah, it, it became a more, uh, I would say, familiar and reflective of the wider culture experience to be at mass um, and uh, more of a focus on it as a, a shared meal, I would say. Yeah. yeah. But, I was just going to jump, jump in. Like, one of the yeah. documents of Vatican II calls for explicitly full and active participation by all people in the mass, right? So in the mass that Ashley's describing before Vatican II, you could show up and sort of it would be happening without you didn't have to be paying attention. Yeah, you might be praying your rosary in, in the background. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and Vatican II is really calling for sort of like an active, intentional shift by the people in the pews to know what's going on. So they had to understand it, but they also had to be paying attention to it and fully mm -hmm. engaging with it. And right? participating, you know, you're going to have before there were the only people who would be altar servers were people on the way to the priesthood. And now in some places you had girls who are altar servers and, and lay people and women who are lectors and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think also the, go ahead. I would say the other thing I think Vatican II did is you sort of see this like opening up to the broader world and culture, right? So it's a, a remarkable shift. It, opening the doors of the church is a remarkable shift ideologically than like the oath against modernism that we see at the early 20th century. That's sort of like all this like democracy experimenting that's happening, evil, bad. And we see, you know, like the church go become in favor of religious freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, we see like uh, huge strides made in, in its in a religious dialogue, particularly with Jews. Um, and for a lot of people, that was sort of like capitulation and admitting defeat. And for other people, it was a welcome breath of fresh air. Yeah, because like basically the French Revolution and even before that, the Reformation, the church had been in a kind of defensive crouch, like, you know, kicking out the heretics, <laughs> policing its boundaries and and Vatican II was just a complete, uh, not a complete <laughs> 180, but uh, an attempt to really look outward and see what good other religions and modern culture can can be retrieved by the church. One of the things that I talk about with students in, in some of my courses is, is like the theologies of, of Karl Rahner and Bernard Lonergan, who uh, really, you know, paved the way for, uh, you know, Catholic approaches to seeing uh a lot of the sacred and a lot of the divine in other religious traditions. And so, as you say, Vatican II really signals this sort of different relationship of the Catholic Church uh, to the world and to other other faiths. And so I want to zero in, though, on um, the Mass and the everyday experience of the Catholic person. My wife uh, comes from a, uh, a working class northeast town in Massachusetts. Um, she's Polish-American, a lot of Polish folks there, a lot of uh, Irish folks there, a lot of Irish Catholics. And she has these memories of the of the mass being in Latin. And for her, it was miserable because, as you said, she couldn't understand anything, could not participate and just could not really 
feel as if she was a part of what was happening in, in worship at her at her parish. However, a, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about traditional Catholicism, as, as slippery as that phrase is and that moniker is, is people who intentionally choose to attend a Latin Mass. Like they, they are saying the Latin Mass is more true to the church's um, true nature and true teaching and uh, to uh, how one should worship God and how the church should worship God. Why would somebody do that? If I don't speak Latin, if I have no idea what's being said and done, if I'm uh, having a hard time following just because of the language difficulties, if if I'm returning to what in essence is something that has um, a feel to it of being very old world, um, why would I choose that? And and why why is that something that even young people would say, yeah, that's what I want. I don't want to go to a church with guitars and drums. I don't want to go to a church where there's tambourines and people like, you know, um, uh, singing in the front, men and women together and so on. I want to go to this very traditional mass where everything's in Latin. What's the draw? I'll I'll start because I um I was once one of those young people that like intentionally sought out uh, Latin Mass. It's sort of otherworldly nature um, can be a, a sort of a, a reprieve for people that feel like it, I mean let's be honest here there are a lot of parts of modern culture that that kind of suck right um, whether it's consumerism or like if you don't want church to feel like a TED talk or a rock concert and you feel like it should be maybe something deeper than that or or, or different than that you know the first time I walked into uh, a Latin mass Mozart's Requiem was playing like gold was everywhere people were speaking this language I didn't really understand but like all intentionally focused on the same thing I mean it felt like I was part of an act of transcendence in a way that I hadn't really experienced yet and so if you are feeling like the outside world is sort of constantly changing and you know as a young person I think in particular when your world is constantly changing getting into something that feels very solid, uh, unchanging, um, but also beautiful, even if we might say that idea of beauty is a little like stuck in Baroque Western Europe. Um, it is nonetheless like something really moving for a lot of people. Yeah, I, oh yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, so I, I had, I did not have a trad cath period like, like Zach did. Um, but one thing that always strikes me about it is is the kind of age gap in, in people who are attracted to this liturgy. So, you know, my mom grew up Catholic. Uh, she was born in the 50s. So she re she remembers going to the Latin Mass. And if you asked her, like, do you want to go back to that? It, it would be a hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's the the viewpoint of a lot of people who actually lived through, witnessed, uh, grew up in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, but then you do get... Um, younger people, people who were became priests under John Paul II or Pope Benedict and who are more attracted to to this liturgy. And I do think um, there's you can see it as kind of shutting out the modern world um, and rejecting it. Um, but I, I, I understand the impulse to find something that feels solid where you can reset, find your bearings to to encounter what is a very can be a destabilizing world um, that feels, you know, relativistic. There's no, there's no truth there. Uh, it's just, you know, who's who's powerful or who has influence. And so, something that that does stem from a very old tradition. I can I can see the appeal of it, even if I don't go to a Latin mass. 
the church has this um, theological principle. It's uh, to use some Latin on this podcast, lex orandi, lex credendi, which is basically like the law of prayer is the law of belief, right? And I think in the United States in particular, Catholics have sort of defined themselves in opposition to their Protestant uh, co-religionists as, you know, you guys changed the faith. We are the unchanging faith. Ours doesn't change at all, right? And so once Vatican II changes the liturgy, it's like, okay, well, if my liturgy changes, does that also mean that my faith changes? And then all of a sudden I'm totally destabilized and I don't really know what's up and what's down. And so to be able to go back to that, I think, retrieves some of that sense of of, of certainty in, in your, your own self-identity that a lot of people in, you know, you mentioned like younger people being attracted to this, that is really attractive when your world is constantly in flux. Uh, Zach, you wrote about this and, and your, your time taking part in a, a Latin mass. And I, I, I pulled a, a particularly poignant passage. You say, I found a lot of security in the very flawed idea that Catholicism is an ancient unchanging faith. This is the most ancient unchanging way to live it out. It took me some time and prodding and prayer to realize that this security wasn't in or from God, but rather about reassuring myself that I had an answer that I would never need to change, a very attractive prospect to someone whose world feels in constant flux. You know, one of the things that we say on this show all the time is that uh, oftentimes returns to uh, traditional or uh, fundamentalist or just in some way old world forms of religiosity are oftentimes uh, reactions to modernity, right? They're, 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 they are modern forms of religion because they're reacting to everything that both of you just said about modernity and all of its uncertainty, all of its uh, flux, and uh, all of its change. And, and I get it. You know, I, I just to link this to a lot of what we talk about on this show, when I think about the folks who I've known who have left evangelicalism, many of them are no longer religious, but many of them found their ways uh, to uh, very high church uh, traditionalist forms of litur liturgical traditions, whether that be Catholicism, whether that be Orthodoxy, um, whether that be um, some form of, of Episcopalianism or, or more often Anglicanism. And so uh, there is that impulse, and I think it really is attractive. And I want to I want to come back to maybe some of the issues that show themselves when uh, people invest in, in these communities and some of the kind of things that come along with them. But before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, Ashley, you, you, your last trip before the uh, pandemic was, uh, you know, some people went to Hawaii and some people went on, you know, you went to Wyoming um, and, and truly like a truly uh, rural part of Wyoming. Uh, all of Wyoming is rural, but this is really out there. And you went to a place called Wyoming Catholic College. And uh, this is really kind of in some sense, um, perhaps a, a kind of emblem of young people who are choosing um, at least traditional forms of edu Catholic education, if not always uh, traditional forms of mass uh, spoken in Latin. Can you just tell us about Wyoming Catholic College really quick? And, and would love to just spend a few minutes sort of talking about these young Catholics who attend this school. Yeah, happy to. So uh, 
as you mentioned, it's in very rural Wyoming, Lander, Wyoming. Uh, it's a very small school, and they they set out uh, to create a school that has a, a classical liberal education. So you can't you can't get a business major here. <laughs> Basically, everyone is studying the classic texts from. Plato onward, um, and and really engaging with source materials. Uh, they are not allowed to have cell phones, so they're cut off in some way from the modern world in that, in that way. And the college also doesn't take money from the federal go government in the form of student loans, so that they do, they can have their own rules that are in line with, uh, with the Catholic faith. They only hire people who are dedicated to transmitting that faith, uh, which you often cannot get away with when you're accepting government money. So, so I went out there just to see see what was going on in Lander, and it was it was a fascinating experience. That the kids stu studying there were extremely bright. They were extremely curious. Uh, they were extremely pious, uh, but. But they weren't. I would. I did not find them to be closed-minded. They were open to being challenged, and but I will say they they had much less interest in in modern politics than in eternal truths uh, and and philosophy and things of that nature. Um, and and they did. They I went to mass on Sunday with them, and it wasn't in Latin, but it was a very it was a very reverent high church experience. Most of the women were wearing veils. There was incense. There was Gregorian chant, that sort of thing. So those things, you know, this this traditional approach to education was uh, was paired with a traditional Catholic faith. I would say. I, I'm I'm interested in this uh, for a lot of reasons, and I really loved reading your work on this. And one of them was because it really felt like. Kind of everything we just talked about where, you know, if I'm choosing to go here as a, as a 19 year old, I'm basically choosing to go to uh, one of the most sort of f f rural far furthest corners of the country. I give up my cell phone when I start school there. So I don't have a cell phone, you know, most of the year. Um, the school has a couple of hundred students. It's not a big place. Um, and I'm basically saying, yeah, there's no media studies here. There's no business studies. I'm going to study Plato. I'm going to study Homer. I'm going to study Aristotle. I'm going to study Thomas Aquinas. And I'm really going to invest myself in what I take to be the classics. And I guess I'm just wondering for both of you, doesn't that sort of signify this maybe in some sense, this sort of thrusting oneself into what feels like the unchanging, you know, instead of focusing on 21st century philosophy or political science, I'm going to spend the, the time exclusively in Homer, Plato, Aristotle, not to mention the church fathers, Augustine, and so forth. Um, there's a little bit of a kind of resonance, isn't there, with somebody who's saying, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere where there's no cell phones or television, only study books that are kind of 1500 to 2000 to 3000 years old, and really try to find what is sacred. And by sacred, I mean, not touched by the modern world. I mean, is that make sense to you? Is that unfair? Is that a kind of um, reflection of how you see uh, the case of, of Wyoming Catholic College? Or what did I miss there? I would say that they they see these ancient texts as, as extremely relevant to the modern world and understanding the modern world. And that only in after steeping yourself in the philosophy and history that led up to the current American experiment, can are you you know really prepared to um, to take on that world in whichever way uh, you want to, whether that's as a, a teacher or as someone who does go into business or, or law. And so I think, and I do see a, a something similar to to the to the mass as a as a as a deep rooted 
place to go to get your bearings, to know where you came from before you go out into the modern world and, and confront the challenges there. And, and that's really the thing I worry about for a lot of these people is the reacclimation, right? Because if you spend so long, uh, not even just a, like going back to source material, but I think there's this fundamental posture. Uh, I don't think we talk enough about uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he, he has this sort of categories of the way Christ relates to culture. And I think one of the, this is Christ against culture, right? So set in direct opposition to the modern world. And if you sort of spend so long with that as your like default uh, position, when you have to go back out into the modern world, I think it's really tempting to be like, oh, never mind. I am going to build a log cabin and meet my trad wife and, you know, have 10 kids and just exist off the grid. Um, and maybe that is what God is calling some people to do, but I'm not sure that it's what he's calling all of us to do. And I think where a lot of times we, we see a lot of like conflict within the church or the wider culture is when people argue about what is the more authentic way to be a Catholic. I might push back a little bit on that as a characterization of, of Wyoming College, Catholic College, in that, you know, I, I think they see the four years of under, undergraduate education as a privileged time uh, where you have the luxury of studying and immersing yourself in this way um, with the full knowledge that at the end of it <laughs> waits the real world. Um, so you can use that privileged time to go to frat parties and have not a care in the world, or you could use that time uh, to engage with um, challenging ideas from the past and it's you know they do also read modern <laughs> modern texts um so yeah i i did not get the impression that they saw them yes maybe set apart from the culture for this four-year period um but i wouldn't say that that's how they, they would define themselves against culture broadly <laughs> yeah and I, I would say you can i just want to tell all these kids you can do both you can go to frat parties and replay i promise <laughs> <laughs> speaking from experience yeah exactly uh. Zach, a renaissance man. Um, so I, I think this will lead us maybe into the, kind of the final, um, you know, final set of topics for today and just zooming out on on the Latin mass and some of the, the liturgy wars that are happening and the, the debates over um, uh, doctrine and, and liturgy in the Catholic Church. But if I if I go back to Wyoming Catholic College, you know, so I totally understand. And, and I used to actually teach uh, in what was called the Great Books Program at Rhodes College. Um, and as I taught there, um, was able to learn a lot from colleagues, but one of the things that we continue to run up against and, and great books programs all over the, all, all over the country run up against is, um, you know, for, for a lot of us in that program, we wanted to include, uh, Toni Morrison as part of the great books. We wanted to include James Cone or, um, you know, Frederick Douglass. And that was sort of seen as like, well, no, not great enough. Um, you know, yeah, there's reasons we're not going to read them. Um, you know, maybe it would be, um, uh, I mean, just to be honest, there was like a dearth of uh, women writers in the curriculum when I taught in that great books program. And that was something I like tried to just work around all the time and sort of figure out how to like get, get past in terms of that. So I guess when I think of that privilege of going to Wyoming Catholic college, I'm wondering if that just, you know, it, I'm wondering if, if there's any, are there, is there racial diversity at the college? Um, is there any sense that like reading female authors, reading, um, authors from the developing world or, you know, from, um, from perspectives that are not just sort of European and, um, and, um, and ancient in that sense, um, you know, is there, is, is, is there any sense of the need for that? Or is that sort of something actively talked about as well? Uh, we re we realize other people do that, but, 
we kind of have our curriculum and we're pretty happy with it, you know? Yeah, I definitely asked that question while I was there. And and there there is an attempt to include more uh, authors of color as well as women when they get into the the more modern modern books. Uh, and I would say on top of that, they the seniors at the college they their final project is is a very extensive uh, thesis and oral presentation on an author of their choosing. Choosing so I got to sit in on a few of those uh, during my time there. Um, and the one that sticks out to me in my memory is it was about Willa Cather, who is she's a, yeah. a, a woman and mm-hmm. nineteenth or twentieth yeah. century American author. Um, so there there is freedom within the within at least your your culminating project to to look to more diverse authors um but yeah i i think it is a fair criticism to say it is it is mostly dead white guys that they that they are reading (laughs) yeah um and i guess this leads back to just sort of zooming out on this whole discussion of traditional catholicism the the latin mass um you know i'll start with you zach you had a, a direct experience with this and then yet you found yourself out of it, you no longer kind of attend a parish that has the Latin mass. Um, other than the kind of uh, theological conclusions that you drew, this this sense that certainty and unchanging, uh, an, an, a sense of the unchanging as sacred um, were, were things that you kind of, in some sense, grew out of or, or, or veered away from. Are there other issues that people should be aware of when it comes to talking about the Latin mass? I, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is this is not just about Latin, is it? I mean, there. when you go back to a Latin mass, the impulse is to go back to other things. Is that unfair? Or um, what is that play when people are talking about going back to the Latin mass or even a pre-Vatican II uh, understanding of the liturgy? I, I think it can be. And one of the things I, I hope that listeners come away with is that I, I like to see this as there's a lot of like concentric overlapping circles in, in sort of the traditional Catholic world. Um, so you'll find a lot of that that sense that like the world is changing too fast and you're losing power is also an ideological like feature that you've talked about Brad in your work of you know white christian nationalism right and so it's easy for people to kind of like maybe overlap in that circle too but also within traditional catholics you're going to find a huge uh sort of unsat dissatisfaction with capitalism right in the world that capitalism has created so people i think are shocked to find these trad caths that are talking about what the post-liberal order is going to look like right so you'll find like Mm -hmm. trad cath marxists and distributists and And so that's a separate concentric circle and then there's sort of the 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 pro-life anti-abortion uh concentric circle where a lot of these people are i would say like politically aligned with um Protestant evangelicals in achieving those ends. Yeah. And so there are parts of, you know, Latin mass, traditional Catholicism, whatever you, you want to call it, that sort of, I, I think, speak to things that are happening in the wider political moment. But uh, it's definitely worth, like, digging a little deeper and figuring out what exactly is going on, because then you're going to know, like, what, how to talk to someone about this. Yeah. And I would just say it, it, it both is and isn't an accident that Vatican II happened in the 1960s. Sure. And a yeah. time of... You know, after two world worlds, world wars, like God has died, um, the culture is changing rapidly, and so for Catholics, it's very easy to do the you know the correlation is causation when it comes to Vatican II and what has happened to the Catholic Church since then. So so priests and women religious leaving um, 
leaving religious life and getting married, uh, uh, Catholics becoming more supportive of abortion, uh, uh, just the general shift of the culture. And so I can see why, as a Catholic, you, you look to Vatican II and say, well, this is, this is all the reform of the, 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 we should blame the reform of the church on what has happened since the 60s. Um, and because we don't have the counterfactual of what the church would look like today if there had not been this major reform, mm -hmm. there's, it's hard to push back and be like, oh no, it could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, totally get it. And there's, there's so much fascinating stuff here. I mean, for my money, I will always appreciate uh carl runner not not always going to agree as my students know but um will always appreciate you know the the carl runner and, and his work and his effect on vatican ii and, and many others um i just i need to share this with y'all because it's just i don't get to talk about this on the show very much so i need to tell somebody um i uh, i spent a lot of time in france and all of my work before uh say 2014 was on philosophy of religion and and so a lot of my time was spent with the philosophers john luc marion who's a who's a um uh, French Catholic and Emmanuel Falk. Emmanuel Falk became a really good friend, and they really represent this division because Jean Luc is a traditional um, guy, and he really sees, uh, along with Cardinal Luchtiger and and some others, he really sees a need for France to return to a kind of uh, uh, the, the French Church, I should say, to a, a sense of. Um, kind of reconquering French culture and European culture, um, whereas Emmanuel is uh, is a new breed, and he go and when I go to mass with him, I always tell him I'm not Catholic, and he's like, "Just come, Bradley." I'm like, "Okay, sounds good." Um, there, it's it's a very um, lively new community: um, guitars, tambourines. Uh, his kids wear shorts, the whole thing, and um, they really, in my mind, represent everything kind of like that we've we're circling around today, and. Um, I, I lived at the Jesuit um, seminary and monastery in Paris uh, when I was there for, for a year. And so I got to know all of the uh, many, many priests and seminarians and got to discuss these things at length. And it was um, it was it was just an incredible time in my life. So That's I don't get to talk about that much on this show. <laughs> and uh, people are always wondering how a non-Catholic ended up at the Jesuit seminary in Paris. But there it is. I live a very I'm doing a podcast in a car. So I do weird <laughs> stuff. That's how it happens. Well, you, I mean, you've, um, really, you've really seen the both and of Catholicism or at least yeah. what I really like, you know, um, I, I was someone who was able to kind of like stretch, like going through my trad phase and then sort of come out of yeah. my trad phase. And I was still, I was still Catholic the whole time, which is, I mean, yeah. not to give yeah. a commercial for my own religion, um, <laughs> but that was what yeah. I appreciated about it. Well, just, I'm going to give you one more wonky thing that everyone listening is like, please don't, but still I'm going to do it. Um, Jean-Luc Marion is really coming from Balthazar and Bart and, and uh, that lineage theologically, and and Emmanuel Falk is really coming from Rahner, um, and uh, you know so many of the the Vatican II kind of uh, leading voices, and so he has a very particular reading of Thomas Aquinas, and he's he's very much um, you know a fan of um, the Greek Fathers, and and Jean Luc is very invested in a certain reading of Aquinas and Augustine. Anyway, blah blah blah. I never get to talk about this stuff anymore, so there you go. I apologize. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Where can people find you? Um, where can they find the podcast? All of your work. Um, so, Ashley, we'll start with you. Where, where's the best way for folks to link up with you? Yeah, so uh, we all live at AmericanMagazine.org. That's where you can find the writing that, that we do. And then Jesuitical, the podcast, can be found wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter at Ashley McKinless, and the podcast is on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Uh, yeah, I... I... 
can't really add anything to that other than if there are people out there that are listening Catholic or not that kind of are interested in like a religious perspective on the modern world. Um, those are the conversations that we're trying to have every week. So if you're a fan of straight white American Jesus, I think you'd also be a fan of Jesuitical and we'll see you over there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I teach at uh, University of San Francisco, which some, some folks may or may not know is a Jesuit institution. And so um, get to get to have great uh, interface with Jesuit colleagues all the time and encourage you to read America Mag check it out and check out the pod for our money. You can uh, see us uh, at uh, straight white JC. You can find me at Bradley Onishi. I can always use your help on PayPal and Patreon. That's in our link tree. And um, we have some events coming up. So February 2nd, uh, this week, I will be at the university of San Francisco talking about white Christian nationalism, uh, February 11th in Philly. And then February 23rd back uh, in the Bay area at Santa Clara university talking about uh, white Christian nationalism. And so, uh, there'll be other events. I uh, have some stuff coming up in Santa Barbara and uh, some other places, but anyway, we, as always are so thankful for y'all. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your support. We will be back later this week with Dan series and the weekly roundup. But for now, we'll say thanks for being here. Have a good day. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.